Here it is. God came in human identity as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to provide salvation for fallen humans. I mean, if you could really kind of try to capture the essence of the Christian message, there's a lot of things that go on from there. But God came in human identity as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to provide salvation for fallen humans. The term incarnation, I want to I open tonight by just defining a couple of things because I think sometimes religious terms, incarnation, propitiation, atonement, we like throw around terms and sometimes we just assume people know what, I, what we mean. But if you just went over to Price Chopper and said, hey, I'm just looking to ask somebody something about propitiation and atonement, could somebody help me? majority of people are going to be like, what are you talking about? And so sometimes I think we might not be familiar with what these terms are. And so I want to just kind of open by defining these things so that we have an understanding of these really incredible biblical terms. Um, the term incarnation simply means God became flesh. Now, different churches teach different things. This is not, there was a, son, uh, a father who kicked his son out of heaven, and then later he was sending a spirit, and there are three co-equal, co-eternal identities. The, listen, Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh. And so God could today choose to speak to us out of this pulpit, literally like the wood of the pulpit. That wouldn't mean that we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and pulpit. It's just another manifestation of one God. And so... Um, the term incarnation is just God became flesh. And the incarnation took place for the purpose of atonement. Well, it's another key term. Maybe you note takers, you know, atonement. You want to write that down. So atonement is paying the price for our sins. If, if that, uh, the most simple way I could put that, atonement is paying the price for our sins. These are important definitions that form the basis of what we believe as Christians. I never want to just assume that you know these and just you know, gloss over these and move on. And so tonight I just want to spend some time talking about this absolutely amazing, wonderful topic of atonement. I don't want to be a church that we only talk about the atonement once a year on Good Friday. Uh, because I need that blood that was shed a lot more than just Easter weekend. And so the gospel, now the gospel literally means the good news. Well, the good news of what? What is the, the good news? And so, well, the good news is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried in a tomb, and then he rose again for our salvation. And so the Apostle Paul is the one who defined it this way, really. He's one of the people. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he says, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, he says, of the good news. Just, I, I like that too, because it's not, it's not lowercase good news. It's like the good news, capital G, capital N. We're talking about deity here. This is the best news, okay? He says, I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. That's pretty key, right? You can't just hear it once. You've got to keep standing firm in it. This Sunday, I'm actually preaching a message entitled, The Battle After Deliverance. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Now, again, 
Some people say once saved, always saved. There's eternal security. But if there is, why does Paul say, hey, this is the good news that saves you if? I mean, saves you if. That's, that's a huge two-letter word right there. <laughs> like, it saves you if. If you continue. If you continue. He that continueth. She that doeth, it's an ETH, a continuation. We don't just say, all right, check that, check that, check that, I'm good. No, he, if you continue, it will save you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. He says, I passed on to you what was, the most, what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. That is discipleship right there. How, does the, how did the first century church grow? Discipleship. What is the vision of Refuge Church? Experience hope, offer hope. Why is that? Because we have to be a people that anytime someone interacts with us, there's a chance where there's, they experience hope and then they turn and offer that hope. Paul says, hey, wow, I, I saw a light on the way to the road to Damascus. And, and now Jesus, he, he's speaking to me. And I get sent to, to, to Ananias. And, and then I get teamed up with Barnabas. There's people who invested in my life, people who gave me things. And now what am I doing? I'm turning and giving these things to you. Someone in your life preached to you, invested in you, taught you a Bible study, spent time with you. And guess what? At some point, you need to be turning backward and say, okay, I've come a little bit far on this journey. I got I to gotta invest in someone else, too. That's discipleship. And so he says, I passed on to you what had been passed on to me. And here's what it is. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. And so he calls this death, burial, and resurrection good news. Christianity is unlike any other religion in that both death and the resurrection of its founder are essential to its message. To quote Toby Mac. His new song says, the only king who's ever chose to bleed. Look at that one line. One line, in church too, in radio, it's just one line sometimes just sticks out to me. The only king who's ever chose to bleed. And this redeeming work he blessed us with at the cross is called the atonement. Since God is holy and just, he cannot overlook sin. He says, this is the way Adam and Eve, this is the way I'm creating things. And so he creates this world, and he has commands. So he cannot be, you know, like we might be sometimes when we're feeling weak as parents, like, don't do that, and they do that, and you're like, no. He says, I said it. I'm, it needs, this is what needs to be done, and you've chosen to defy or disobey, and so I can't just overlook sin, and so I can't be in fellowship with sinful human beings. The holiness of God demands that he separate himself from sin. Well, has anyone here or watching online ever sinned before? Okay. <laughs> well, the problem then is he can't have interaction as a holy God with, with, with sin. And so... Separation from God 
the source of all life means death, both physically and spiritually. So a literal death, a physical death, and a spiritual death. So because we've all sinned, we're going to read a scripture that says we've come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death. So we have a problem because we're all sinners. And if you didn't raise your hand, you sinned again. And so, and so separation from God, eternal separation from God, is the ultimate spiritual death. And what Revelation talks about it, Revelation 20, verse 11, it says, I saw, John says, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. You can try and hide, but eventually we can't hide from God. Adam and Eve tried it. Cain tried it. You would think that somewhere humanity would wise up and go, you just probably can't hide from God. But we read stories of people who actually tried it, and they still try he says, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. The books were open, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done. I do not want to be judged according to what I've done. And what's recorded in the books? And he says, the sea gave up its dead, and the death, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and we all and all were judged according to their deeds. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of that. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This, is, this lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So divine justice requires a penalty for sin. As I just said, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death. And, and, and so, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So if the wages of sin are death, but we have this free gift... The only way that we have access to this gift of eternal life is through Jesus Christ. That's, again, why people, when they'll say, well, you guys are Jesus only. I'm like, I, I don't know what to say to that because, like, yes, according to Scripture, without Jesus, I have no chance. That, so uh, I'm Jesus everything. And so without the shedding of blood, life is in the blood. Remember that when you go eat steak, see, I'm telling you. That poor cow did not give his life for you to eat that meat well done. And so without the shedding of blood, there's life in the blood, the giving of life. There can be no release from this penalty and no restoration to fellowship with a holy God. That's why Hebrews 9.22 says, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no removal. There's no cancellation of sin. And so God's love and mercy, however, sought to restore. God, this is what's amazing is we think the Bible is this story of humankind's pursuit of God. It's not. The whole Bible is the story of God's pursuit of humankind. In trying to restore exactly what he aimed to do at the beginning of time with Adam and Eve. And so God's love and mercy uh, wanted to, to, sought to restore humanity of fellowship by providing a substitute to die in our place. That way it would fulfill all the requirements of his justice, but the death of animals they were never enough to remit the sins. Look at Hebrews 10.4. It tells us very clearly, these are people, uh, the writer of Hebrews, different people will guess as to, as to who that is. Um, I have my own theories, but 
the Hebrews, they, they never, it never identifies the writer. And so whoever this writer is, is writing to people who are thinking about returning back to go back to the law of Moses. And so um, there's scriptures in Hebrews that freak people out. I think it's Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It says something about there remains, there, if you go back to what you once knew, there remaineth no remission of sins. And, and people are like, what? What if I sin and I can never be forgiven? What he's talking about there, as, as he writes, is that if you go back and you remove the work of Calvary and the cross and try to go back to a workspace system where you're killing animals and doing it yourself, there's not remission there. And so that you're, there's not a sin that like, oh, if you do that, he, you, now, you're, now you're gone, you know. So, no, God's grace is there. He's still reaching. Thank the Lord for that. And so he says um, in, in 1040, he says, it's not possible very clear. It's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Can't get any more clear than that because these people were thinking about going back and trying that system rather than putting their trust in the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed blood. And so unlike an animal, we were created in the moral, intellectual, and spiritual image of God. An ordinary person could also never remit sins. We all probably know somebody that's really spiritual, a really good person. But scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So as wonderful as we know, some of these great, incredible, incredible Christian people, they still aren't good enough. Even if you say, no, I have only sinned one time, just one time, I just messed up one time. That's one time too many. And so, all have sinned. If everyone has sinned, then that person would also be required to die for their sins so they can't pay a price for someone else's sin when they're dying for their own sins. And so, another guilty person can't pay the price for another guilty person. Only a sinless person could pay the price. But there was none. Okay? Revelation, John has this vision too where he looks and he's, nobody can break the seal. Who can break the seal? Everybody's crying. Wait, there's one that can break the seal. This was referring again to Jesus Christ. God was sinless. But here's the thing. The Bible says, John 4, 24, is that God is a spirit. Spirits don't have blood. So we have this sinless God that does not have blood. Well, according to scripture, blood was the essence of life. So we have a God that is perfect, but he's a spirit and he doesn't have blood. And so he couldn't die. To provide a suitable substitute, God came to earth as a sinless man. Again, he was not like God the Father was like, man, that messed up. He kicks his son out of heaven. And then he just watches. Like, that's not, that's not what happened. God says, I love them enough. I am perfect. I am of spirit. And I am going to take on flesh, which is absolutely amazing that the God of the whole universe who spoke everything into existence, and this is what separates, I've said this so many times, there are all kinds of stories of creation and redemption in ancient Near East literature, but most of them are filled with stories of gods who like take naps and kill their creation because they woke them up and just crazy stuff. And there were battles for supremacy. With our God, it's, it's the only God of ancient Near East literature 
where the divine creator is intimately interested and involved with his creation. That's incredible. That he would be able, willing to look at us and go, you failed me. I set up parameters. You broke them. You lied. You disobeyed. You hid from me. Now I'm just going to strike you dead. But it's not what he does. He says, I love you and I want to restore what I have always wanted, and that is an intimate, powerful relationship with my creation. And so he says, I'm going to take on humanity. What? A God that's perfect, a God that's a spirit that spoke everything. He's going to humble himself and take on the level of his creation and allow himself to be beat up, ridiculed, mocked, and killed by his own creation. And the irony is, I'm going to die on a, in dying on the cross, hanging naked on the side of the road. That was one of the most embarrassing, despicable ways to die. He says, I'm going to do this to the person that is literally swinging the hammer, that is punching me in the face, that is whipping me on the back. I am going to die for that very person. That's mind-boggling. And so, Jesus says, or God says, I'm going to take on humanity. This is why the book of Acts, Christ has already died on the cross, ascended into heaven. And the book of Acts says in Acts 20, 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. To feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now, that doesn't make any sense because God is a spirit and God doesn't have blood. And so, did we just find an error in scripture? Not at all. Because when did God have blood? When he took on flesh and he was a human being and took on humanity as Jesus Christ, not a co-equal, co-eternal identity. He, Jesus Christ is God, manifest in flesh, and he comes to this earth through the womb of a woman, has a, 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 a literal natural human birth, and he is born into this humanity, and that is when God had blood to purchase his church. And so Jesus was the only sinless human who's ever lived. You might be married to somebody that thinks they do no wrong, but Jesus is the only sinless person to ever live. So he was the only one who did not deserve to die. He was the only one who could be a perfect substitute. And as the infinite God... His human death could cover all the sins of all of humanity for all time. But in order to do that, you would have to really love someone. Well, the good thing is, is the Bible says, greater love hath no man than this. Man would lay down his life for his friends. The Bible says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So out of love, in God's grace, provided a sacrifice for our sin through the death of the sinless man, Jesus Christ. Christ took our place and suffered 
the penalty of sin on our behalf, which we all want to focus on, as did like these movies and stuff, that the, the fact that his beard was plucked and, and that there was physical agony and that there were crown of thorns that were so deep it would actually pierce into the tissue of the brain. And that when they would take a cat of nine tails, it would wrap around your body and it would literally rip out chunks of skin and ribs would be exposed to the point where Isaiah says his visage was marred more than any man. He was unrecognizable as a human being. Terrible. That moves you to emotion. But I imagine not just the physical element, but if you've ever done something wrong, the guilt, the condemnation, the weight, the heaviness that comes with failure and sin. Jesus Christ took on the condemnation and the guilt of the entire world. This is why he knew what he was walking to when he's praying in the garden and he's going, let this cup pass me by. In his humanity, he knew, even God manifest in flesh, he still chose to take on these limitations of being a human man. And so his flesh was like, I ain't trying to go to the cross and do this. But he knew, even as God manifests in flesh, I need to, I need to win the victory over this over this human body, which also preaches a message to us that when you're filled with the Spirit of God, there's no battle that you can't overcome. But we have to do it through prayer. And so Jesus is in that garden, and he's literally just drops of blood just coming from You could imagine the intense agony as he knows. I'm not just getting ready to handle the physical element of crucifixion. I'm getting ready to take on all of the guilt and condemnation for all of humanity throughout all the sands of time. That, I, 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 I can't wrap my brain around that. And so, uh, if we believe in Christ and apply his death, burial, and resurrection to our own lives, we know that when we study scripture, the death we can die out to self, and that is through repentance. That's why Jesus' first message was about repentance. Peter gets up, first thing he says, hey, well, they said, what are, we, what are we supposed to do? He said, repent. There was a message, John the Baptist steps on the scene. He's a forerunner to Christ. His first message is about repentance. And so there's a dying out to self. There is a, hey, I want to align my life with his death, and how do I die out to self? I, I, I found an altar. I, God, forgive me. I, want, I don't want to continue in the same way that I'm living. And then he was buried in a grave. Well, then Romans 6 tells us we can be buried with him in baptism. And so even, when, even after we come up out of that water, we can walk in newness of life. And Because and, and, if we just died out to self, and then buried, and there was nothing else. We're just, we're just a dead sinner. But there's new life after burial. And so we can repent, and that's the death. We can be buried in the waters of baptism. That's the burial. And then as we come up out of that water, we can walk in newness of life. And the resurrection is being filled with the Holy Spirit as Peter so capably and clearly lays out in the book of Acts in that, that second chapter of Acts. And so he sheds his blood. And to save and atone, but the blood does not save until it's applied. And again, I could teach just weeks and weeks and weeks on this, 
But I'm referencing things that if you say, wait, that was interesting, you need to get into a Bible study. You have got to. There's 10 weeks meeting once a week for about 45 minutes. You sit with a trained and certified teacher, and you will dive into this stuff in an amazing way. So if you're watching online, you're here today, you've never completed a Bible study, do it. It's amazing. It's incredible. And so... All through, the blood, all through the Old Testament, they were killing animals, and they were applying blood to doorposts. And, and, and way back in that book of Exodus, before he led them out of Egypt, there had to be a lamb that was killed. And, and then they had to, that lamb was going to cover their doorposts so that when the death angel came for the firstborn, that firstborn would not be lost. But the blood, if they would have shed the blood and never applied the blood, they would have, the firstborn would have died. It was not just the blood being shed. It was the blood being shed and then the blood being applied. That's why the Bible says God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. It does not say they cannot perish. It says they should not because the blood that he shed paid the price once and for all. That right there should atone for every single sin. The problem is there's a lot of unused blood sitting there, meaning... Jesus died on the cross. There's enough blood to cover the sins of every person in the world, but there are people that refuse to apply the blood to their own doorposts, so to speak. How do I do that? Well, when I take on his name, I repent at an altar, and there's death at the altar, and then I take on his name in the waters of baptism, and I apply that blood to my life as I take on the name and become the bride of Christ. And then he fills me with his spirit. And so he lays out this beautiful plan that when you read the whole Bible, you see that no, no author in the world could ever weave together a more perfect story than God does from Genesis to Revelation. And so, yes, that's wonderful. So God doesn't excuse sin. He does not say, like, oh, I'm going to turn a blind eye. I'm just... No, instead, he took on the sin straightforward. He took it on, and he said, I'm taking on the sin and the guilt of the whole world. There was a debt. There was a debt to be paid. And that's why when Paul writes to the church in Colossus, he says, he, he canceled. He, he, he canceled out the debt that was written against you. He blotted out the ordinances. So there was debt again. We owed a debt because of our sin. It had to be paid. We would go before you, please forgive me, please, no. It doesn't matter. Someone has, there's no, there's no just, I'm going to ignore it. Someone has to pay the debt, and he paid for it. Now, we have a chance because of his payment, we have a chance at eternal life rather than a hopeless death. This is why there's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Why? Because if you want to come to the Father, I am my Father. And sometimes that Father language, it confuses people. Why? See right there, we have a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why is he saying my Father? Well, if you understood Scripture times, which many of you do, everyone wanted to know. A person's name, which says Simon Bar-Jonah, means son of Jonah. Who your father was, was everything, everything. It, it was a conversation starter. And so when people came to Jesus, the first thing they want to know is, who's your father? Who's your father? And so he uses this father language continuously because that was the language of that day. Not because he said, you know what? When people live in 2022, I want to confuse them and make them think there's a trinity. <laughs> That's not what he, he was shooting for there. 
he was in the cultural setting, he would say, and then, but then you would read on, and he would use this father language, and then he would go down to like John, John the 14 chapter is really clear if you want to read that. And he gets to the point where he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. And so he would lead them. He would, the greatest teachers take you from what you do know into what you don't know. When you go to school, they don't start your trigonometry. You start with one plus one. And so you start with what you do know and move to what you don't know. So he says, you understand the Father concept. Let's start there. And now I'm going to move into something deeper. I and my Father are one. And so there was revelation there, and people started to get it. That's why finally when Peter says, he says, who, what, who are people saying that I am? Peter goes, thou art the Christ. And he makes this verbal proclamation that Jesus Christ is God. And Jesus looks at him and says, flesh and blood have not revealed to thee. He says, but now I'm going to empower thee, Peter, because you have a divine revelation. And so I do pray that there is a divine revelation in this church and online that people would understand the oneness of God, that Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh. And so he says, you're not coming to the Father but by me. Why? Because it's my blood that opens the door for this divine communication. And, and, and as a human, Jesus is the sole mediator between a holy God and sinful humans. 1 Timothy 2.5, he says, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. And that's the man Christ Jesus. That's Jesus. The verb atone appears frequently in the Old Testament. The basic meaning is to pardon, to forgive, to remit. In the Old Testament, sin was only dealt with temporarily because they had an atonement lamb, a substitutionary lamb. And so they would kill this, this lamb and this would just, it, 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 never, it never took care of the sin. It just would say, hey, you know, let's, let's push that sin back one year. And so the, the blood would be shed from the animal and God was willing to be patient and kind and push that up. Why? Because he said, this is my plan for right now. And when you follow this, you are following me in obedience. And so it would kind of just push it back to the next time that that was done. But the blood that was shed never actually paid the price. It never canceled the debt. Because the animal is not a human being. It did not have free will and choice of, uh, you know, the, 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 the lamb did not say, I'm sorry, Lord, I want to, you know, it was, it, was, it was not a human being. And so... Um, what happens is by his death, Christ provides a permanent remission or removal of sin. It wasn't just a push back to the next time type of a thing that he says, I'm taking care of sin once and for all. And that's why they wanted to kill Jesus. And they were so frustrated because when John the Baptist, he's baptizing people preaching and Jesus walks up. And what is the first thing John says? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John was a prophet. And he looked at Jesus and verbally just clearly prophesied who the role of who he was. It was not it was it was almost like a transitional phase because see John was starting to baptize people. John was preaching repentance. It wasn't exactly the message that we live today because Jesus hadn't died on a cross and hadn't opened that door yet. But that's why he was known as a forerunner to Christ. John was the bridge between the Old Testament into the New Testament. And that's why Jesus says, Hey John, there's nobody greater born among women than John the Baptist. What a what a what an incredible compliment. He was this he was this bridge between the old and the new testaments. 
between the law and grace. And so he looks and into and, and into an audience that would understand animal sacrifice, who is still participating in animal sacrifice. He looks and says, "Wow, look right there! That's the that's the Lamb of God that takes away, meaning it's a done deal, once and for all. He takes away the sin of the world." What a powerful introductory statement for Jesus to walk up into. And so in the New Testament, the King James uses atonement. Do you know how many times? One time. Now that's confusing. One time. In that one time it's used, the word means reconciliation. If you've ever had a a spat with your spouse, I know nobody here probably has, but other people in the world, they do that. And then you aim to reconcile with your spouse. Romans 5.11, it says, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. However, to describe Christ's work, the King James also uses another Greek word that we have transliterated into propitiation. Propitiation. That word means sacrifice of atonement or atoning sacrifice. Romans 3.25 says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith to our faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. 1 John 2, 2 says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Wow. You know, we could say, not me, take my life, not my child, not my spouse. And we could give our life for a people or a family, a person or a family. But none of us are good enough to say, go ahead, I have lived sinless. Take me and let the whole world be saved. No. But here, Christ says, I'm going to pay the price. And not just for you, but for the sins of the entire world. The Old Testament foreshadowed Christ's death by animal sacrifices. God's people offered blood sacrifices to atone for their sins. These sacrifices didn't take them away, as I just said. But on the cross, Jesus dies for the sins of all time, and his sacrifice avails to all in every age who believe in God. Christ's death was necessary not only to provide salvation for New Testament believers, but also for Old Testament believers whose sins God had passed over each year and pushed them back another year and another year and another year in anticipation of the cross. Now, we don't think about that part sometimes. We're thinking just through our lens and our life and the New Testament. But he also died for the sins of everybody through the Old Testament who was following his plan of animal sacrifice. And I'll pause, too, to say this. This is why this church, we don't baptize infants. Because every person, that, in order to enter into this covenant relationship, 
into this time where you say, I want to take on the name of Jesus. I want to follow the death, burial, and resurrection. I want to die out to self at an altar of repentance. I want to be buried with him in those waters of baptism and take on that name and become part of the bride of Christ. I want to be filled with his spirit. Anytime someone did this in the New Testament that we read about, there was a teaching, believing, understanding, decision, commitment, things that an infant, no matter how advanced you think your child is, when that baby cried, I've never yet been in a delivery room. I've never yet come to see someone in the hospital after a delivery, and I hold the baby, and the baby just loves the eyes. He goes, Pastor. I want to live for Jesus. It just doesn't happen. Now, several of you work in labor and delivery. You have in the past. Maybe you have seen this. If you have, let me know. I will change my theory. But that came about hundreds and hundreds of years after the first century church and the Bible. Because people started saying, well, what about kids? What about? And, and so they said, uh, we got to come up with a plan. And it's not Bible. It's just not Bible. And it's hard to immerse an infant under the water. So we said, well, let's just sprinkle some water on the head. Call it a day. We'll go have ham and rolls afterwards. But, but, every time the Greek word baptism, the root word mean, is bapto. It literally means to immerse, plunge, put into processing liquid. That's why Jesus, Matthew 3.16, came straightway up out of the water. Our Savior himself was baptized by immersion. They went down into the water in Acts chapter 10. Uh, so every method of biblical baptism, it, it, was, it was in the name of Jesus by immersion. So we don't baptize that way just because, well, the organization we're part of. Like, No, that's the biblical method of what we see. It was interesting, I, I came across a, a U.S. Catholic magazine in 1977, it's a, it's a thing, and it says, at first, baptism was administered in the name of Jesus by immersion, right in the magazine. I'm like, well, then, if, if, that's, if that's the way, well, then why did we change it? So, for me, it's not, a, it's not pitting one religion against another, it's simply saying, I'm going to follow what the scripture says. And so for an infant, there, that, there's that commitment where you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm applying that blood to my life, and they're not prepared to do that. Well, what age are they? Well, that's up to a parent because you understand your child. At what age can a child understand? People use the term age of accountability. That's not in Scripture, but the concept is there to where you can say, hey, at what point can I sit down with a, a child and say, do you know why you're getting baptized? Do you know what does it represent? You know why Jesus died on the cross? Now I'm not going to make sure. I'm not going to make sure that a child can explain to me what propitiation and atonement are, but can they tell me I want to I want to be baptized because I, I Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I want to have my sins washed away. Just as long as they have that basic understanding. But there have been times where a kid goes, "I want to jump in that water." I say, "Do you know why? Cuz it's warm." Uh, okay, well, you know what? At some point I look forward to baptizing you. But today's not that day. I feel like I would do them a disservice. And so the cross showed that God had not arbitrarily ignored past sin. Instead, he made provision for payment for all sins. So the Bible describes Christ's sacrifice as not only bringing redemption from sin, but also bringing us reconciliation toward God. 
it's not just, hey, let me wash that away, but now let me reconcile what I've always wanted between us. Too often, we start walking this way, and people want to emphasize what we're walking away from. Well, I'm going to give this up and that up and that. (laughs) Egypt and humanity, we're all the same. You look back to the book of Exodus. He called them out of Egypt, and they get the first first hardship that they get. There were leeks and onions. I just want to go back. And Moses is like, Lord, help me. I'm going to strike them. But then God's like, I'm going to strike them. And Moses is like, no, no, no. And he's interceding. And. telling you, sometimes we people, it never changes, it's not, it's first interest, Old Testament, New Testament, it's, it's, why, because when we hit tough times, humanity often just wants to go back, but just remember this, God's interested, Jesus Christ died on a cross, not just to call you out of this, and, and forgive this, but also reconcile and, and call you into something. God will never call you out of something if he doesn't have something greater for you in your upcoming future. So you just, just trust him. Trust him. And so atonement's not just about your past. It's about your future, too. What Christ did at Calvary It's not only about what he called you out of, it's what he's calling you into. And as I close tonight, Christ's work was completed by his resurrection. That is the final step that actually turned defeat into victory. Because as awesome it was to shed blood, to be buried in a tomb, if he stayed in the tomb. I don't think we have a lot to preach about. We can preach about a great teacher who performed miracles and died for people that he loved. I think we still have a good story. But when he rose from the grave and defeated death in the enemy and took the keys to death, hell, and the grave, we, we have the great, like the resurrection of Christ is what sets our story apart from any That's why Confucius is dead. Buddha's dead. I mean, like, you look through Muhammad. We have the Savior who died and rose again. And the atonement of Christ is the basis for salvation in every age. If we don't get this, this is why I take this time tonight and Certainly, probably for some of you, you're like, man, this is is Bible study 101, you know. If we don't get this, if we don't have this down, everything, everything else we believe is an unstable foundation. Yeah, but we're filled with the Spirit, yeah? And the only way we can have the Spirit is because He atoned for our sins and paid the price on the cross. I believe in water baptism. The only reason my sins can be washed away is because he paid the price on the cross. Yes, but look at heaven. There's eternal life. And yeah, and the only way we're ever getting to that place is by applying the blood that he shed on the cross. Like, it is everything. 
the cross, the atonement is everything. Paul said at one point, he says, I'm not going to preach anything except Christ and Him crucified. Certainly, trained by Gamaliel, one of these bright Pharisee minds. I mean, he could have he preached the greatest. He went to Mars Hill and debated with the greatest Greek philosophers. But at some point, he just was like, you know what? I'm not preaching anything else except for Christ and Him crucified. Because he knew that is the most powerful thing I can preach. This is the absolute essence of the hope of every single message we preach. It is based on that the atoning lamb, the propitiation for our sins. Salvation originates in God's grace and is appropriated by obedient faith based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As you're here, you're watching online, and you have never repented of your sins. Luke 13, 3 and 5, he repeats the exact same thing, which he doesn't do that very much. He says, I accept you, repent. You shall all likewise perish. And then he repeats it word for word two verses later in Luke 13, 5. Without repentance, there is no salvation. But then he says, for us to be buried with him in baptism, when they asked Peter, what are we supposed to do? He said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And scripture says that baptism doth also now save us. Baptism is more than just like joining a church. It's a literal part of his plan for our salvation. And then he says, I want to put my spirit inside of you. And the evidence that you know you have my spirit is you will speak with other tongues. That's, that's, that's scripture. Death, burial, and resurrection. And so his, his, his atonement, the death, burial, and resurrection, it not only paved the way and, 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 and even through all the people of the Old Testament forgave sin and made a way but it also set up a future for his plan of salvation it's just absolutely amazing and at the end of the end of the, the, the whole crux of this message the most mind boggling thing is when you just go but why well yeah because he wanted heaven he wanted yeah but but why well, because it was his plan, because scripture, yeah, but why? And what that all comes down to is this. Jesus Christ loves you so much. He loves me. I, I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But he loves us so much that he says, I'm going to take on this flesh and humble myself and walk among my creation. For this purpose, someone has to pay the price, and I don't want it to be them, so I'm going to do it. And with that, I just think, we just need to find a place at an altar. And if anything, yeah, if you've never repented, if you've never been baptized, great, do that. But if you have, I think we just got to find a place at an altar and again say, Oh, God, I've heard this message a lot of times. Yeah, I know a lot of this stuff. Yep, heard this before, but never let me lose my gratitude for the fact that you loved me enough to do this for me and for humanity, to just give us a chance to make a choice. Thank you, Christ, 
for the atonement. Thank you for being the propitiation for my sins. I invite you right now to just find a place to pray and to thank him for who he is and everything that he's done and everything he has planned yet for your life in the future.